Our second reading today is two readings from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, and Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 17. So these are God's words. For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do unto my remembrance. In like manner also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it and unto my remembrance. For as often as ye drink, eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And Hebrews, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Else would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body didst thou prepare for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come in the roll of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered according to the law. Then hath he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by which will we have been hallowed through the offering of the body of Jesus the anointed once for all. And every priest indeed standeth day by day ministering and offering many times the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth waiting till his enemies be made a footstool of his feet. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are hallowed, and the Holy Spirit also beareth witness to us. For after he hath said, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, and upon their mind also will I write them. Then saith he, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. These are God's words. Father, thank you for the word that you have spoken to us. Please send your spirit to help me rightly divide it and to distribute it to each of us as he has need. Plant it in our hearts, water it, and make it grow that it may bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In our series on the church and worship, we have finally gotten to the top of the mountain. We have laid a great deal of groundwork. We have climbed a lot. We have seen the patterns that worship must follow. And we have learned that table fellowship is the point to which the whole sequence builds, the climax and the pinnacle and the ultimate purpose, not just of worship, really, but of life itself, communion, mutual participation with God. Under the New Covenant, this is the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. By the way, Eucharist is not a Roman Catholic word, just in case 
you're wondering, it's a term from the Greek New Testament that means thanksgiving. The Eucharist is a thanksgiving. And that is true, but the Eucharist is also a lot more than a thanksgiving, as our passage today indicates. The words of institution that Christ speaks, the way that he describes the elements when he first institutes the Lord's Supper, do not couch it in terms of thanksgiving, but rather in terms of covenant memorial. Today I want to look at what this means as it is fundamental to understanding the Lord's Supper and to understanding its place in our worship. I had originally planned to preach a relatively long sermon that briefly looked at all the major elements of the supper in one fell swoop, but as I worked this out, I realized we need to look at this idea of covenant memorial first, separately, so that is what we'll be covering today. And then next week, we will look at the form and the structure of the Lord's Supper and how Scripture indicates that we should do it so that we can do it, uh, which is not entirely like how it is done in most churches today, but we will get there next week. That will probably be a long sermon, but today we're going to keep it fairly short, which is my preference, because the less I wear out your brains, the more likely you are to understand and remember what I'm saying. So let us talk about memorials and covenant signs. And I'm going to start in a rather strange place, but bear with me. You will see the method to my symbolic madness very soon. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 8 and look at verse 28, where Jesus is confronted by legion and another demon-possessed man. So Matthew 8, 28, when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, there met him two possessed with demons coming forth out of the tombs, exceeding fear so that no man could pass that way. The reason I start here is not because this passage has any particular relevance for us, but because it is a good example of what I want to talk about, which is the Greek word for tombs in this passage, as in many others, is actually remembrances or memorials. The, the demon-possessed men are coming forth, in other words, out of the monuments, for that is what a grave is. In the modern day, we generally just have gravestones as memorials or monuments, but think of the more elaborate mausoleums that were common among the wealthy of times gone by, even in the, the Victorian era. You would have an entire little building that was constructed to house the dead. This is the kind of idea that we have here. The tombs are built in memorial of the dead, and they are frequently called memorials or remembrances throughout the Gospels. I prefer the word remembrances because it more explicitly draws the connection to remembering, uh, whereas the, with memorial, you've got the, the mem sound in there, you know, memorial, memory, but it is not as clear that we're actually dealing with the same basic word because that re at the beginning is missing. Some parts of Scripture make this connection in important ways. Uh, if, you, uh, if you follow me on Facebook, you, you will know this already, but I will go through it for those that do not. Let me show you an example from Luke's gospel. Now, I'm not going to try to exegete this. Uh, it's, it's rather that I want you to start seeing something in Scripture with regard to the concept of remembrance and how important it is and the way that these patterns are set up. It's a pervasive pattern, and it is foundational to understanding the Lord's Supper itself. If we actually begin with the Lord's Supper in Luke, 
and look for the word remembrance in the Greek, we find a very intriguing sequence. So starting in Luke 22:19, with the Lord's Supper, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this unto my remembrance. The next time we see this word is quite a while later, after Jesus' trial, when Peter betrays him. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how that he said unto him, before the cock crow this day, thou shalt deny me thrice. Then as Jesus is on the cross, the thief says, Jesus, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Right after this, Jesus' body is taken down and wrapped in a linen cloth and laid in a remembrance, a tomb that was hewn in stone where never man had yet lain. And that's very pregnant language also since the, the Ten Commandments themselves were hewn in stone and placed before God as a remembrance, a memorial that he would remember in the most holy place. But we'll talk about that soon. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue with Luke's account. Luke 23:55. the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and beheld the remembrance, the tomb, and how his body was laid. And then on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they came unto the remembrance, the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the remembrance, and the angel tells them, he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you when he was yet in Galilee. Whereupon they remembered his words and returned from the remembrance and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest." Now, as I said, I'm not going to exegete this to try to tell you what it means or what Luke is getting at. I'm honestly not entirely certain myself. But the point is, when you lay out these connections, it starts to look like this might be an important pattern. But we're not even remotely done yet. Memorials or remembrances can take many forms in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew 26, 13, we have the woman who comes and she's weeping and she is cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair. And we read, Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which this woman hath done shall be spoken of unto a remembrance of her. So the spoken word itself is a kind of memorial to this woman's actions in the same way that a tomb is a memorial to the dead. And this gets us closer to what is in view in 1 Corinthians 11, a very specific form of this word, this remembrance word in Greek is used in 1 Corinthians 11. It is an unusual form. It's used in Luke's account of the Lord's Supper also, and it is used only one other time in the New Testament. If you're onto it, you'll have guessed that it is, of course, in Hebrews 10, which is the passage that is on your sheets. Hopefully by now you recognize that Hebrews 10 and 12 are both very significant texts in our study of worship so far. This is the place where Scripture most explicitly relates New Covenant worship back to the worship under Moses as the substance and the fulfillment of the signs and the symbols that were given at Sinai. So what is going on in the passage that we read in Hebrews 10? Hebrews is is very dense. I I tried reading it to my children once. (laughs) We gave up halfway through. This is just not making sense to them. But if you have it in front of you, you'll find it a little easier to work through to understand what we're saying. Hebrews is speaking, Hebrews 10, is speaking of the way in which the sacrifice of the old covenant, these sacrifices were reminders, memorials of sin, 
Notice verse 3. A remembrance is made of sins year by year. Now, when you read this, it is natural to read it as the remembrance being before the people, that is, the people offering the sacrifices are being reminded of their sin, which is true. He does say it brings it to their consciousness. But if you skip down to verse 17 and see how this theme is explained and brought to a close here, it is quite clear that while it may be that the people remember their sins, that is not the only way in which the word is being used. It is not the only meaning in the text. What verse 17 does is it quotes God speaking through Jeremiah 31, which we looked at last week, saying their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. So clearly, then, there is an important sense in which the sacrifices of Israel were a memorial to bring the sins of the people unto God's remembrance. And if we turn back to passages that detail these sacrifices, we find this language used repeatedly. In Leviticus 5, for instance, it describes the sin offering. There's an explanation of how the sin offering is to be performed And verse 12 explicitly calls that sin offering a memorial. What does this mean? This is a a very deep topic, but the basic logic is fairly simple. The animals that a believer sacrificed, what did they represent? They represented himself by slaughtering them and having the blood splashed on the altar And then burning up another animal on that altar, it called to remembrance, both for himself and for God, the sin that was in him that made him liable to death, and his inability to ascend into heaven because of that sin. He had to slaughter an animal to show that he should be slaughtered, and he had to send an animal up into God's presence in the place of himself because if he were to ascend into the fire and smoke of God's glory cloud, the cherubs guarding the heavenly throne would cut him to pieces with their flaming swords. In this way, the sacrifices were a continual memorial of sin and of the need for a redeemer since, of course, they could never take away sin. Now, under the New Covenant, the situation is radically different. Of course, that's the main point of the whole book of Hebrews. It is precisely with regard to the ineffectualness of the animal sacrifices that Hebrews 10 compares the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and then connects us back to 1 Corinthians 11. Do this unto my remembrance. Just as the animal represented the believer dying and going into God's presence, so the Eucharist represents the Lord Jesus dying and going into God's presence. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever and sat down on the right hand of God, verse 12. And because he has done this, and because he participates in our human flesh and now stands before God or sits before God, we who participate in him are able to enter through that flesh, as it says, into God's very presence in heaven. And that is, of course, what Hebrews 12 is all about. So whereas the animal sacrifices were ongoing memorials of sin and the need for that sin to be put away, the Eucharist is an ongoing memorial of righteousness, of the fact that sin has been put away. It is a reminder, not primarily to us, but before God of the death of Christ 
Look again at the language Paul uses to explain what Jesus says. Jesus says, do this as my remembrance or unto my remembrance or in my memory or as my memorial, however you want to translate it. And Paul in the next verse explains, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink the cup, ye proclaim the Lord's death until he come. But to whom are we proclaiming? I think we instinctively read this as a gospel proclamation, thinking of all the times when the Lord's death is proclaimed to unbelievers in the New Testament. But that is exactly what the Lord's Supper is not. The Lord's Supper takes place within the church, and since the earliest times, it has excluded unbelievers. It is not a proclamation before the world, but a proclamation before the throne. It is a reminder to God of the sacrifice for sins and of our participation in it. Now, I'm not at all denying that it is also a proclamation to each other. But if you look at the way that the scriptures themselves speak about memorials and remembrances, it is clearly primarily a proclamation to God. This follows the ancient biblical pattern of God remembering his people. Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. When God remembers his people, it doesn't mean that God actually forgot about them. It means that God acts to save them. But he he doesn't just remember us. His kindness and his mercy are so great that he gives us signs to guarantee that he will act to save us, he will remember us. He condescends to our weaknesses by furnishing us with means by which we can know that he remembers us. Because he is in heaven, we don't know what he is thinking. And so he gives us signs so that we would know that he will regularly remember us. As we discover right after God remembering Noah in Genesis 8, in Genesis 9 we read, God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living soul that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud... And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living soul of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. God's remembering of his people is a major motif in Scripture, and it is always tied to his covenants. Think, for instance, of the enslavement of Israel in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, we read, It came to pass in the course of these many days that the king of Egypt died... And the sons of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage, and they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took knowledge of them. And of course, we know that he then goes on to act to save them. He raises up Moses in order to save Israel out of Egypt. And now pay attention. When Moses asks God, who shall I say sent me? What does God tell him? Exodus 3.15, you probably all know this very well. Thus shalt thou say unto the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial 
unto all generations. What is so significant about this? You probably never thought about what it means that God's name is a memorial before. But here we see God doesn't just give us signs out there to be memorials, things like rainbows, over which we have no control. In his great mercy and kindness, he gives his people an even greater assurance of his promises with signs that we can directly participate in, memorials that we can invoke, as it were, on our own. Remember, liturgy is true magic. In this case, it is a name, Yahweh. This is a name that he gives in preparation for the covenant with Moses, a name that when you use it, God promises to hear and to remember his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this is why you'll often hear it referred to as his covenant name. That is what this means. It is also part of the reason that the Israelites were strictly charged not to raise up this name for a worthless cause, or as it is more commonly translated, to not take his name in vain. If you call on God using his name, Yahweh, he will hear And he will not hold you guiltless if you're coming before him for no good covenantal reason. Incidentally, this is also why we do not typically address God as Yahweh anymore when we pray. That was his old covenant name. And under the new covenant, he has a new name, Jesus. And through Jesus, we are able to pray to him by the intimate title of Father. Jesus is also a covenant name for us, a memorial name. Which is why... If you remember Acts 19, the sons of Sceva, certain also of the strolling Jews, exorcists, took upon them to name over them uh, that had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, a chief priest, who did this. And the evil spirit answered and said unto them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and mastered each of them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You see, it is a dangerous thing to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus when you are not in a covenant relationship with him. Rosamund Pike and Ryan Reynolds take note. So God gives his name as a memorial, as a way that we may bring to his remembrance the covenant that he has made. But he does not only give his name, he also gives enacted signs. Some are memorials for us, and some are memorials for him. When he institutes the Passover, for instance, he says, This day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it for a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations ye shall keep it as a feast by ordinance forever. It shall be a sign unto thee upon thy hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the law of Yahweh may be in thy mouth, For the strong hand hath Yahweh brought thee out of Egypt. So this ordinance is a memorial for us. I say us because although it is given to Israel, it was not, of course, um, it hasn't passed away since it is an an ordinance forever. Rather, just as we saw with circumcision last week, it is gathered up into Christ and completed and brought to its fullness in the new covenant. We've seen from Hebrews that the sacrifices of the Old Covenant are brought to fruition and find their substance in the Eucharist, and in the same way, Passover does also. And in fact, all of the feasts and festivals 
of the covenant with Moses are summed up and completed in the Lord's Supper. It is a very deep and very expansive sign, which it is truly hard to appreciate the full significance of. We don't have time right now to look at every single feast and festival that they they had and how they are summed up in the Lord's Supper, but I have already mentioned the sin offering is called a memorial in Leviticus 5. Another example is the tribute offering or the grain offering, which of course is a, a little wafer, sounds familiar, of which God says the priest shall burn it as the memorial thereof upon the altar, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto Yahweh. So it is a, a memorial to God. The tribute offering is a memorial, and there are many other memorials for God under the Old Covenant. For instance, the half-shekel tax, the atonement money. That's also described as a memorial. Thou shalt take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before Yahweh to make atonement for your souls. So whereas the Sabbath was a memorial to remind the people The atonement money is a memorial on behalf of the people to remind God. The money is put in the tent of meeting and later the tabernacle and then later after that the temple. And no one can see it there except God. The Israelites who paid the tax couldn't see it. They weren't allowed in there. So it's not a memorial to prompt them to remember anything. It is a memorial to prompt God to remember. A presentation before him to remind him to act on their behalf. This theme of memorials and covenant remembrances is so pervasive in Scripture that once you know to look for it, you can actually easily find it without the word memorial or remembrance having to be used. Much like you know that the angels are present at the giving of the the law at Sinai, even though they aren't mentioned there, we're told elsewhere that they were. If you know the pattern, you can make certain inferences, you can make certain deductions. I mentioned before, for instance, that the stone tablets of the law were a memorial placed before God. But why did I say that? Because they're not called that anywhere in Scripture. At least I I checked. I couldn't find any place they're called that. But it's easy to see that they are because they're in the ark, right? Why then the ark? The ark goes into the Holy of Holies. No human being can see them in there. No human being is allowed into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year, and he doesn't look into the ark. He just sprinkles the place with blood and gets the heck out of there because otherwise he's going to get consumed. So who is it for? Obviously for the one who might consume the high priest. For God himself, the Holy of Holies, is where he lives, where he resides. God sees the tablets of the law in the ark at all times, and they are a memorial to him. In fact, Moses doubles down on this idea in Deuteronomy 31. He requires the Israelites to place not just the tablets in the ark, but the whole scroll of the law beside the ark, and thank God he did so that it could be recovered later, because he doesn't think the tablets are enough. In Deuteronomy 31, he says, Take the scroll of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck, Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against Yahweh, and how much more after my death? But most memorials are not against the people. Most memorials that God gives, because he is gracious, they are for the people. They are reminders to God of his covenant, from his own memorial name to the sacrifices that they offered, 
Um, think about how the saints of old prayed to God from David to Nehemiah, Psalm 25. Remember, O Yahweh, the memorial name, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindness, for they have ever been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to thy loving kindness, remember thou me. So remembrance is a key theme in the way that the saints pray. Psalm 74, remember thy congregation, which thou hast gotten of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of thine inheritance. Or in the, Old Test, uh, the New Testament, think about Cornelius. The angel comes and he tells him, thy prayers and thine arms are gone up for a memorial before God. So God condescends to be reminded by us through the proper liturgical methods of his covenant and then act upon that covenant. This is what we are doing in the Lord's Supper. We are pleading the death of Christ to God in the way that he has established for us to do so that he would remember and act. We are participating symbolically and liturgically in Christ himself and especially in his death for us by which he purchased a bride for himself, a body that we are members of. Now, I've tried to call your attention to how remembrance or memorialization is always covenantal. When we say that God remembers because of some sign that we do, which he gave to us, it is his covenant that he is remembering. By the same token, when we remember because of some sign that he gave to us, it is once again his covenant that we are remembering. When God remembers, he acts, and so what does he act on? On his covenant, what he has said he will do, the terms that he has agreed. He acts to reiterate the covenant, to confirm the covenant by acknowledging its meaning and promoting and maintaining it. Scripture teaches us that important covenants should have signs for this purpose of memorialization and remembrance. The covenant of Moses, for instance, had a special sign. Verily, ye shall keep my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that ye may know that I am Yahweh, who helleth you. And nature actually teaches us the same thing. There's a basic creational covenant that we enter into at some point in our lives, we at least... Uh, the adults among us have, and hopefully the children will too, it has a covenant sign. This is the covenant of marriage, the natural memorial of that covenant by which we call it to remembrance and reenact it is the marriage bed. This is where the covenant is remembered and reaffirmed. And in the same way, there's a deep connection there actually, but we won't go into that now, in the same way the Lord's table is where the new covenant is remembered and reaffirmed. This is... Why you'll often hear people talk about covenant renewal worship, this is what that term means. I'm not a big fan of that particular word, renewal, because I think it gives the wrong idea, as if the covenant could somehow fail, as if it would expire without us renewing it every week. I'd rather call it covenant reaffirmation. But either way, it's the same idea. The Lord's Supper is a memorial of the covenant by which we remember it and re-enter it and reaffirm it. We, we look back and we bring the past into the present. When we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we are pleading in the heavenly court, 
Remember the sacrifice of your son, O Lord, as we participate in him, taking his body into us so that we might become one substance. And we pray, cast us not from your presence, but integrate us into yourself as we symbolically integrate him into us. And when we do this in faith, he remembers his covenant and he gives us the substance of Christ that we symbolically partake of through the Holy Spirit. And this is why the Eucharist matters. And that is why we will look closely at how to start doing it next week.